The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the last day of our summer seven-day session. It's uh, the 11th of January, 2020. And today we're going to take up a Zen story uh, from the hidden lamp, uh, stories from 25 centuries of awakened women. This is edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon. Um, we've been working our way through um, this text on and off um, I think starting in about either 2013 or 2014. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful compendium of stories, um, teaching stories featuring, featuring women after really, uh, centuries of, of drought in this regard um, within the Zen tradition. Um, this, this particular story that we're going to take up today is called The Old Woman, Zhao Zhao and the Tiger. And um, it has this has a little bit of a Korean con connection back to Chinol. Um, every, every story in The Hidden Lamp um, has um, two things added to it. To it uh, a commentary by a, by a, a woman teacher and uh, each one different for all of the, the um, stories in the book. And um, then also some questions that are posed by the editors. And so the, each, each um, story has these three different parts. And the, the commentary in this case um, is done by venerable Chi um, Kuang Sunim, and she is the um, abbess of a son center in King Lake, Victoria. And uh, she's originally from Australia, and she <coughs> spent <coughs> 20 years training in Son in Korea. Um, not sure if it was part or all of that time. Um, with Kusan Sunin, the 20th century Son master with whom Stephen and Martin Batchelor trained and uh, Martin wrote a wonderful little book of his teachings up um, about him and his teachings called The Way of Korean Zen. And the place where um, <coughs> Chi Kwang Sunin trained was Songwangsa, which was founded by Chinul. Um, I haven't ever um, met um, Chi Kuang Sunim, but um, she sounded like she was an uh, is an interesting um, person. She's chaired the Australian Sangha Association and also the Buddhist Council of Victoria, and is quite involved in. Um, interfaith and environmental work and um, uh, teaches it not only in throughout Australia but in Indonesia and Korea and, Ma and Malaysia and we'll come to her to her comments a little bit later. Well, first our story The Old Woman, Zhao Zhou and the Tiger 
One day, when Master Zhao Zhou Tsongshen was outside the monastery, he saw an old woman hoeing a field. He asked her, What would you do if you suddenly met a fierce tiger? She replied, Nothing in this world frightens me, and turned her back, and turned back to her hoeing, turning her back on Zhao Zhou. Zhao Zhou roared like a tiger. She roared back at him. Zhao Zhou said, There's still this. That's, that's our story. Um, and just a little bit of background material. Um, of course, we don't have anything on the old woman bowing a field, um, as so often is the case in these stories, that um, the uh, women are nameless, but at the same time uh, memorable. Um, we, we do have a lot of material on Zhao Zhou. This is Joshu, the great, great master Joshu. Um, his dates are 778 to 887. And he really is one of the, the, the greatest teachers of the Tang dynasty. And he appears in many koans in the Mumon Khan, in the um, Gateless Barrier, and Hikigan Roku, Blue Cliff Record. And um, he lived a very long life, um, so it's not surprising that there are many, many stories about him. Um, he was um, about 119 or 120 when he died. And he seems to have had an affinity for women. There's an unusually large number of stories in The Hidden Lamp featuring Joshua and often um, elderly women, Joshua and old women. Um, I'll give a cu couple of examples of these in a minute. Um, and, and also just a little bit of um, biographical material about, about him. This is from Zen's Chinese Heritage. Andy Ferguson. Um, he was a disciple of Nanshuan, Nansen in, in the Japanized form of his name. Um, he had his great awakening um, under Nansen uh, at the age of 18, so very young. But he continued to train under uh, Nanchuan for for decades up right up until his teacher died and at that point Zhao Zhou Joshu was already in his 50s but then he set out to travel um, go on pilgrimage to further cultivate his practice and he he's made a famous um, vow that um, if he met even a seven-year-old child who could teach him he would receive teaching from that child and if he re re met a hundred year old man who um, was in need of his teaching he would he would teach so um, under under all circumstances he was willing to be um, a student or the teacher depending on 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 what was appropriate so um, perhaps he just everybody he encountered on his journeys. You can imagine him walking across China. He would engage with them 
to um, f find out where they were coming from. And it said that he kept um, wandering right up until uh, he was 80 years old. And then at that point, um, he was invited to settle down and teach at Kuan um, Yin Monastery. monastery. And um, this monastery was um, largely destroyed during the Cultural Revolution, except for this stupa, um, memorial stupa to, to Joshu. Um, but it is now it has since been uh, rebuilt, and um, you can you can go and visit visit it, and it has um, quite a lot of uh, genuine Zen. Chan, Chan training happening there. It's in Hebei province, Jiaoshan city. He's said to have had uh, 13 Dharma heirs, though his, his direct lineage um, didn't last very long. Of course, among the many, many, many stories there are about Zhao uh, Zhao, uh, Joshu, the most famous is Mu. A monk asked, does the dog have the Buddha nature? And Joshu replied, Mu. Just a couple of examples of uh, his his. Dharma. One day Zhao Zhou asked Nan Xuan, where do people with knowledge go when they die? Nan Xuan said, they go to be bull water butterflies down at the Tans and Yue's houses at the base of the mountain. Zhao Zhou said, thank you for your instruction. Nan Xuan said, last night during the third hour the moon reached the window. the famous koan, a monk asked Zhao Zhou, what is the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? Zhao Zhou said, the cypress tree in the front of the courtyard. Zhao Zhou asked a monk, how many sutras do you read in one day? The monk said, seven or eight, sometimes ten. Oh, then you can't read scriptures, Zhao Zhou replied. The monk said, Master, how many do you read in a day? Zhao Zhou said, In one day I read one word. And just a couple of examples of his interactions with women from other, other stories from Hidden Lamp. A nun asked Master Zhao Zhou, what is the deeply secret mind? Zhao Zhou squeezed her hand. The nun said, do you still have this? 
Zhao Zhou said, you are the one who has this. This one's called The Old Woman Steals Zhao Zhou's Bamboo Shoots. One day, Master Zhao Zhou was outside the monastery and an old woman came along carrying a basket. He asked her, where are you going? The old woman said, I'm going to steal, to steal Zhao Zhou's bamboo shoots. Zhao Zhou said, what will you do if you run into Zhao Zhou? The old woman walked up to Zhao Zhou and slapped him. So it seems like ancient China was full of feisty old women <laughs> ready to, to go have at it with the masters. <laughs> okay, we should probably just say a little bit also about um, tigers. Yeah. Um, so tigers sometimes feature in the folklore around um, temples and masters. Um, when we were on pilgrimage in China, we went to um, a temple not that far from Beijing. I don't remember what it was called, but it had a series of paintings um, which told the story of a tiger who was befriended by a monk when he was in retreat, living in a cave. And when the monk became the abbot of the temple, this particular temple, um, the tiger used to come for Taisho. <laughs> when the monks gathered in the Dharma hall the, and um, the, the, the uh, ceremonies before Taisho had happened then, the, the, the tiger would quietly appear in the doorway of the Dharma hall and sit there and listen to the, to the talk. Of course now uh, tigers are very much threatened because they're, of their habitat being um, destroyed. I doubt whether there are tigers coming to that temple now in, outside of Beijing. But there are still places in the world where uh, tigers are a real force. Um, there's a, an Indian writer, Amitav Ghosh, who's written a book about the Sundarbans, sun that's how you say it, um, which are the, they're the uh, largest mangrove forest in the world, and they're on the, the east coast of India um, and this vast, this vast network of waterways and small islands and um, large mangrove trees and there are still Bengal tigers living in this um, vast forest and um, according to Gosh um, people are regularly eaten by them. So human beings are often seen by tigers as food. 
And so that's where our, this, um, I can understand Josh's coming from, uh, where his question is coming from. What would you do if you suddenly met a fierce tiger? what to do if <coughs> we encounter something um, which we fear a great deal. And the old woman says, nothing in this world frightens me. And she just goes on with her hoeing. Then Zhao Zhou roars like a tiger, and then she roars right back at him. This, this is a little uh, reminiscent of uh, there's another koan which uh, people take up early on. Um, it's among the uh, miscellaneous koans, which is, what would you do if you encountered a ghost? Of course, in, in ancient times, um, people were very believed in ghosts and were very afraid of them so it's like saying what would you do if you encountered something very frightening perhaps we if it was modernized today we say what would you do if you encountered a a, a terrorist wearing a, a vest of explosives so what what does this roar of Zhao of Zhou's and, and the old lady's roar back. How does this um, answer the question? What would you do if you suddenly met a fierce tiger? What does it imply? If this were a koan in our, in our collection, we'd be uh, working on these points. And also on Zhao Zhou's comment, there's still this. Let's now have a look at Chi Kuang Sunim's reflection on this story. She, she, <coughs> she says, My first introduction to this powerful koan was about 30 years ago when I was living in Korea. I was receiving acupuncture from a former Korean monk who suddenly blurted it out. What if you met a hungry tiger on a dark night? He, like me, had studied with the late Master Kusan, and this encounter was an unexpected inheritance, challenged me to deepen my faith, effort, and courage in befriending this tiger. So what, what is our tiger? We may each have a different tiger that... Um, cause for our befriending it. How do you how do you befriend a tiger? She goes on, why did that tiger Zhao Zhou roar, shout, hiss and spit at an old girl hovering over her hoe as she tilled the soil? What's going on? I recall that it was old women bodhisattvas who taught me everything in Korea. A one-eyed cook taught me a Korean dialect, dialect and how to make kimchi. 
another taught me the movement of the hand when slashing the tall grass. The mother of four generations of Zen masters taught me the art of robe making. Then there were all those wise, inspiring old nuns who just knew. So it was common to see old monks chatting, laughing and debating with these natural inheritors of insight. It's wonderful to get, get a sense here from her description of a, a living tradition with, with connections back through all our ancestors, all the way back to Bodhidharma and beyond. Of, of all the places where, where uh, Zen is, is practiced, um, probably uh, Korea is the, the one which has the most vibrant, vibrant and living uh, tradition now. In which women play a big part. She says, Zhao Zhou's far-reaching, observant eye would have noticed this age-humbled figure in her fields, whether she was known to him or not. He would have heard her hose rhythmic tap, tap, tap in the fertile soil. I wonder why he needs to confront her fearlessness with fear-monkering words. Look how she wields her tools. Moment by moment, her life is completely devoured. She isn't concerned with untimely death. <laughs> this is an interesting phrase, um, especially when we're talking about um, human-eating tigers. She says, moment by moment, her life is completely devoured. She isn't concerned with untimely death. What would it be to live a devoured life? I think probably people can guess that she means a life in which we're completely absorbed. Completely involved. No separating thoughts. Just doing what needs to be done. Plowing the field. After Zhao Zhou questions her, the solitary old woman holds his glare steadily in her own and retorts, nothing in this world frightens me. Yet beware, an unclear gaze and you may end up in the mouth of the tiger. She returns her attention to cultivating both field and mind, sowing seeds of virtue and compassion, the very foundation of the Buddha's teaching. So too our ordinary everyday actions require our minds to be present, present and clear. Zhao Zhou roars like a tiger, pointing directly to the great way. The urgency of the matter is made clear. Just as the third Zen ancestor, Zhangzhi Sungsung, exhorted his students in his Faith and Mind poem. And again, I'll give our version of the lines she, she um, quotes here. Both striving for the outer world as well as for the inner void condemn us to entangled lives. 
or her, her version of it is, live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. We can get attached to those inner feelings of emptiness just as we um, can get entangled in, in the busyness of our lives. And it's especially something to, for us to be aware of as we come out of Sashin. We may have reached states of, of inner quiet and stillness, tranquility, and uh, want to hold on to those. But if we do that, then um, we're really um, going against the whole uh, spirit of uh, our Zen training, which is to be present, not to cling, not to hold on to, to states of mind, pleasant, The old woman bellows back her courageous roar from the belly of her inner spaciousness, instantly feeling infinite generations, instantly freeing infinite generations of her ancestors who had labored and perished on that very spot. After her earth-shattering roar, this boundless woman returns to cultivating her field. Such, such a, a rich image is one of a person hoeing the ground just tap 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 it's our job to cultivate our field steadily devotedly, rhythmically. <coughs> she continues, in 2009 such an unforgettable deafening roar shook the very ground of my own reality, awakening a fearless courage within me. I was alone in my forest retreat on Black Saturday, the day of Australia's worst bushfire. No longer, of course, Australia's worst bushfire. As the smoke-filled blackness descended, a penetrating silence sliced through all my discriminations, leaving a profound sense of the insignificance of me. This silence manifested in clarity and precise life-saving action. Perhaps for me, as for the old woman, there was a distilling of life's purpose in those timeless moments as the shadowy grip of the fear of death faded in me. Uh, be, I'd be, be really interested to learn more about what happened there. I'm sure there'll be many more stories now after these, if these last um, conflagrations about people's bravery. <coughs> Zhao Zhou has pointed out the dangers, and the old woman clearly stands her ground. 
but is it enough to show one's fearlessness when penetrating into the heart of all things? Zhao Zhou's last words on the matter are, there's still this. This what? This magnificent, joyous moment in life, or this fearful thing bringing us grief? Don't smother reality or thisness with such impressions. What is this tiger in my life, or this fearless old woman in me? What is that great timeless inner roar of no sign, sound, and where does it come from? Such inquiry points to a deep, spacious stillness within, yet demands that we act now. Only through the cultivation of this, within Zen action, may Zhao Zhou's last words be grasped. And again, if we were working on this as a, as a koan, we would be um, plumbing the, these words of Joshu's and, and then presenting our understanding of them. Then she writes a poem. Compared, compared to a non-virtuous human heart, the tiger is very kind. But to speak one word or even create a single dharma, you're devoured. To speak a word or create a dharma, dharma here uh, I think just means a, th a thing. And to speak a word or create something is to also create a self. Self drops away when, when words and thoughts drop away. And it's when we create a self that, that we're in danger of being devoured, in the literal sense. And we fear this, we fear uh, um, being devoured. The questions that the editors add to, the, to this story um, point to it, it's, its subject matter of what do we do in the face of the fearsome. They ask, what do you say to your fear? Did Zhao Zhou and that old woman have the same roar? Where is the tiger right now? Um, quite a few people um, in this sashin um, were reporting experiencing um, bouts of strong anxiety. And this, this is not uncommon. Sometimes it'll come up because we've, we've gone deeper into the, into the practice, which is to say deeper into our own minds. And then this fear arises. It could be fear of the unknown, F 
fear of being devoured in some way, losing uh, uh, a sense of cohesiveness, a sense of self. Somebody called fear um, the primordial emotion of samsara. In other words, it goes along with um, having a body mind that we identify with as ourself. Stephen Batchelor said this about fear Fear is the longing not to be hurt the craving not to suffer misfortune. It is the fundamental aversive reaction to the threats with which life confronts us. As well as being an emotion on its own, in its own right, it pervades all self-centered emotion, whether consumed by hatred or riddled with doubts, in both cases I am afraid. And while this is so, um, at the same time, um, our fears are full of promise. They're, they're, they're rich veins of uh, potential insight. Self-knowledge. Pema Chodron says about fear, and she's written a lot about it. Fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. If we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, then our experience becomes very vivid. Things become very clear when there is nowhere to escape to. She talks about the, 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 the wisdom of no escape. When we're, when we're, um, fear arises, it's like we're very, in a very um, stark way confronted with our own mind. Shanti Davis says, All anxiety and fear, pain and suffering immeasurable, each from the mind itself proceeds. Thus, the truthful one, that is the Buddha, has said, this is so, and therefore I will seize this mind of mine and guard it well. I will seize this mind of mine and guard it well. There's a lot of neuroscience being done on this, um, on, on, around fear and anxiety, and um, showing how much we're... we're um, we're wired for fear. I think it's, they call it um, the negativity bias, mm. where we we tend to see danger, and and react to it, um, because and from an evolutionary point of view, the ones who who saw danger survived. The ones who were reckless did, often didn't. On top of that, 
uh, that just that that bias in our in our perception, you'd say, because we're self-aware creatures, we can also fall into the trap of fearing our fear. And it, and it does take some some delicacy to work with fear and anxiety when they arise in in practice or in our daily lives, for that matter. Again, Pema Chodron um, says many helpful things here. One is she says that we should place the fearful mind in the cradle of loving kindness. Place the fearful mind in the cradle of loving kindness. How do we how do we do that? It suggests something other than fighting fear. Just as we didn't see the the um, uh, old woman respond to Joshu's roar by by fighting Joshu the tiger. She did something quite different. I mentioned earlier in the week in Taisho um, this um, Australian GP Claire Weeks who who uh, his little book I've um, been reading um, about and said it's really a book about of practical advice on how to work with one's anxiety and fear. Um, Claire Weeks was I'm not sure if she's still alive, but um, she is or was an Australian GP, um, and this little book was first published in 1962, and um, so sometimes the language and some of the examples she gives are a little bit dated, but it's got some really really helpful material in it, and um, and the, I mentioned her sort of motto for for people working with anxiety and the symptoms of anxiety, which are many many physical ones. Um, was the, her little motto is um, face it, accept it, float, let time pass. Just read a little bit from from her book here. She's talking about these these um, <coughs> different instructions. Face it, accept it, float, and let time pass. And this little section is headed up, True Acceptance. Make sure that you appreciate the difference between truly accepting and only thinking you're accepting. If you can let your stomach churn, your hands sweat, your heart thump quickly, or your head ache, without paying too much attention to them, then you are truly accepting. It does not matter so much if at first you cannot do this calmly. It may be impossible to be calm at this stage. All I ask for true acceptance is that you are prepared to live and work with your symptoms without paying them too much respect. This might seem to be not not accepting, so to not be paying them too much credence, but with with um, thoughts, 
if we push them away, it's like we give them more solidity, more weight. When we, when we push something away, we are, we are making it into an other. So she's saying that acceptance is, is something else. It's where you don't mentally create a big split between yourself and the, the thoughts. The thoughts are products of the mind, as, as Shantideva was reminding us. So they are um, us at that moment. At that moment, of course, they change. So acceptance is being prepared to live and work with these uncomfortable physical sensations that arise with fear and anxiety. She says, after examining these terrible feelings, I want you to remain seated and concentrate on each in turn and try to make it worse. Worse, You will find you cannot. Um, apparently, the, <clears throat> the power of the adrenaline-releasing nerves is limited. And this is, the, she goes into earlier on how um, the release of adrenaline is what it sets this, this off. This, uh, these physical sensations that come with anxiety, panic. You may succeed in slightly intensifying its effect with concentration, but only slightly. And yet, all this time, without realizing it, you have been shrinking from facing these symptoms squarely because you were afraid that by so doing you would somehow make them worse. It was as if you gave them a fearful sideways glance. This is the fear of the fear. Let me reassure you, you cannot increase your symptoms by facing them or even trying to intensify them. In fact, you may find that when you try consciously to make them worse, they improve. The very act of concentrating on them in this way means that for the time being at least, you look at them with interest rather than fear. And even this brief respite from tension may have a calming effect. Symptoms can only be intensified by further fear and its resulting tension, never by relaxing, facing and accepting. Are you beginning to suspect that your symptoms may have had you bluffed? They most certainly have. Um, then she, got, she goes on to give, give case studies, examples of, of um, people suffering severe um, panic d disorder type symptoms, learning to um, uh, face the fear, accept it, and work with it in a particular way. She goes on to talk a little bit about this, this instruction, floating. To float is just as important as to accept, and it works similar magic. I could say, let float and not fight be your slogan, because it amounts to that. Let me illustrate more clearly the meaning of float in this regard. 
a patient that had become so afraid of meeting people that she had not entered a shop for months. When asked to make a small purchase, she said, I couldn't go into a shop. I've tried, but I can't. The harder I try, the worse I get. If I force myself, I feel I am paralyzed and can't put one foot in front of the other. So please don't ask me to go into a shop. I told her that she had little hope of succeeding while she tried to force herself in this way. This was the fighting of which I had previously warned her. I explained that she must imagine she was floating into the shop, not fighting, fighting her way there. To make this easier, she could imagine she was actually on a cloud, floating through the door. I also explained that she could further help herself by letting any obstructive thought she might have float away out of her head, recognizing that it was no more than a thought and that she need not be bluffed into giving it attention. This is such an important um, thing to develop in our practice, being able to um, recognize our thoughts as thoughts. R recognizing that um, we don't have to um, believe a thought. No, we don't have to get caught up in the content when we, when we recognize the container, it's a thought. It can be telling us completely false things. I can, you can um, equate this this floating with with Chinnell's, um advice for us that the times that best practice is is to is to rest to to not do anything and she has another section that she heads up um, masterly inactivity. Masterly inactivity is another way to describe floating. It means to give up the struggle, to stop holding tensely onto yourself, trying to control your fear, trying to do something about it, while subjecting yourself to constant self-analysis. It means to cease trying to navigate your way out of um, illness by, by meeting each obstacle as if it were a challenge that must be met before recovery is possible. It means to bypass the struggle, to go around, not over the mountain, to float and let time pass. The average person tense with battling has an innate aversion to practicing masterly inactivity and letting go. She vaguely thinks that if she were to do this, she would lose control over the last vestige of her willpower and her house of cards would tumble. And she quotes somebody saying that they, they, they feel they have to be on guard. And then if, 
if they were to let go, something would snap. So there's this sense of we have to hold ourselves together. The next section is loosen your attitude. If your body trembles, let it tremble. Don't feel obliged to try and stop it. Don't try to appear normal. Don't even strive for relaxation. Simply let the thought of relaxation be in your mind, in your attitude towards your body. In effect, it's, it's, it's sort of having this, this, relaxed, this relaxed attitude of mind that is the most important, more so than, than um, trying to relax the body. Time is nearly up. Just end with um, the, uh, a few of the do's and don'ts, which um, are for working with one's one's anxiety, but um, are pretty applicable to practice in general as well. Do not run away from fear. Analyze it and see it as no more than a physical feeling. Do not be bluffed by a physical feeling. Accept all strange sensations connected with your anxiety. Do not float them. Do not fight them. Float past them. Recognize that they are temporary. Again, recognize that they are temporary. To, to remind ourselves when we're suffering some acute um, mental state while we're sitting that it's a state it will in its own time pass let there be no self-pity settle your problem as quickly as you can so this one perhaps not so applicable in session we don't we we, we don't um, go off and settle our, settle our problems until afterwards perhaps. Waste no time on what might have been and if only. Face sorrow and know that time will bring relief. Be occupied with your practice. Do not sit there brooding. Be occupied with your practice calmly, not feverishly trying to forget yourself. That's one of our, our um, responses to um, trying to avoid some pain, painful things that may be coming up. Remember that the strength of inner muscle may depend on the confidence with which it is used. To, to, here's where we need to draw on our, our faith. The strength of our practice may depend on the confidence with which it is used. To bring as much, as much um, um, sincerity to the practice as we can. 
Do not measure your progress day by day. Don't count the months and years that you have been deluded and despair at the thought of them. It just doesn't help, this, this um, counting. Just let all counting in our practice go. Never accept defeat. Remember, it is never too late to give yourself another chance. Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all the Without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.